Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist podcast at the America Centrum in Hamburg. My name is Andrew Sola, the founder and producer of the show. We always do our best to give you the highest audio quality. However, recording over the internet can lead to some blip sounds. Please forgive these small audio glitches. Also, today I'm happy to announce that you will hear some variations on the transatlanticist theme by Gunter Donner, who is our resident expert on the EU, and he's also a fantastic pianist. Take it away, Gunter. We are on our way to Budapest, Bastard and Chippo and God Knows and Sbo and Stina and me. This is the opening phrase from Violet Bolavayo's debut novel, We Need New Names, about Darling, a young girl from Zimbabwe who leaves her home to come to the US. I'm Stephanie Schaefer, and I'd like to welcome you to the third episode of Lady Fiction, a podcast dedicated to reading women. To discuss Bulawayo's We Need New Names from 2013, I invited Oksana Marafioti, whom you heard just read out the opening phrase, who's a US-American writer of Armenian and Russian Romani descent, and the author of American Gypsy, a memoir published in 2012 with Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. Oksana's writing brings together both her childhood memories from the Soviet Union and her experiences as an immigrant in the United States. Her writings have appeared in magazines such as Rumpus, Slate, and Times. Oksana is also a classically trained pianist and holds a BS in Cinematography from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, as well as an MFA in Creative Writing. She was a Black Mountain Institute Kluge Center Fellow at the Library of Congress, and she teaches Creative Writing at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And in 2020, she went on a transatlantic adventure and became the Picador Guest Professor of Literature at the University of Leipzig in Germany. And I'm so happy to have her with me today. So welcome to Lady Fiction, Oksana. Thank you so much for having me. We already heard the first phrase from this novel that you suggested we read together. And I'd like to thank you for suggesting that I read it because I really enjoyed it. So we can start by say by recommending this to our listeners and say buy the book and read it because it speaks to many issues. But maybe we can start by talking a little bit about the summary and the plot events and uh, what it's all about. So how would you summarize this? So this is a narrative of a 10 year old girl named Darling. It is a story of a kid looking through a kid's eyes at the destruction of her own country in Zimbabwe. And her and her friends are um, just being children against the backdrop of violence that unfolds around them. Uh, the mi Midway through the novel, she uh, moves to United States to live with her aunt. And I think she remains there until she's 18 or so. That's where the book ends. And so you have this book that encompasses two different lives, right? For for someone, a, a local, someone who comes from their own country, and then an immigrant narrative that kicks in halfway through the story. And there's there's so much 
stuff we can start with talking about this novel. So so I was wondering when I read it, is this, what would you say? Is this a Bildungsroman, a picaresque? Uh, it's, it's a story of initiation. And what do, what would you suggest we do with this children growing up or child growing up adolescent perspective? I think it could be any of those things, but I'm leaning more towards the uh, Bildungsroman simply because it is a narrative of a person who's a young person in her formative years, and she is kind of becoming an adult through this experience that's really vivid. And although there's not a lot of spirituality involved in the narrative, it still comes into play kind of in the in the, the back alleys of the children's psyche, you know, in how they're seeing the world around them. And the narrative reminds me of Candide, which is one of my favorite books in that we have two very young protagonists who are dealing with some pretty heavy adult things unfolding around them. And it changes who they are, even though they're still young, you know? And uh, yeah, I think it is definitely a, a, a young person's narrative, not to say that it's written for young adults, though. Mm, yeah, that's, yeah, that's an important difference. It's so great that you're mentioning Condit here, because I was reminded of a catcher in the rye and oh, of, really? and of Condit, yeah, because it's it's this young person's narrative and it 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 feels like also with through the narrative rendition so how how the story is told it feels like you're inside this young person's mind and you see everything through their eyes and with Condit and the catcher in the rye the super iconic figure of American literature both of them kind of refuse to grow up and Condit who's a hero of the Enlightenment and who's the main point about the novel is that he he says, oh, well, I go through all this BS and then I come home and I say, for cultiver notre jardin, we have to start cultivating the garden, you know, let's get real and not worry about the big questions so much anymore. So that's what Condite says in the end. And I, and I was wondering um, how this works with Darling. On the one hand, she has seen so much, she's traumatized, maybe we could talk about trauma in a bit. But at the same time, she's also, she stays in her own world. She doesn't suck up to all the different trends and stuff. She she works through her own things. So maybe we can talk a little bit about her specific perspective. How is this rendered? How is this staged in the narrative? Mm -hmm. uh, that's actually really interesting. Um, I was thinking about that as I, as I was reading children internalize trauma you know they don't come out being wise sages in fact that it doesn't hit them until they're way into their later adult years i mean think about this right most of the time when you're a child and you're going through the amount of trauma that darling goes through which is something that's being reintroduced to her over and over again as a ch as a child right it doesn't just happen once or twice it's it's a daily occurrence Uh, she, she's just like along with the other kids, other friends, they're internalizing it. And so if you're looking at kids uh, from that perspective, from an outsider's perspective, you're not going to see them affected by it. In fact, you know, I had not similar experience, but I, I had a pretty interesting upbringing with a lot of, uh, it wasn't a very settled atmosphere. And I felt that I was so strong that it didn't bother me at all. So I was like, darling, I mean, although darling doesn't really verbalize what Kandi yeah. verbalized, right? But yeah. it's kind of like, I don't care. Nothing bothers me. This is just stuff that happens outside of me. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. 
But the thing is that I realized years later that I was not. This this was a, a coping mechanism. Yeah. And if we read this this narrative from that perspective, then we can see it as a relatable. It's it's a very relatable story, even if the settings are to us foreign. What happens to these children happens to so many children in in different degrees in different ways. Mm. So obviously, we need to talk about this child's perspective as a way of seeing the world, uh, which makes it on the one hand, maybe more palatable, also more uh, irreverent, but at the same time, also more serious. And then the other thing um, that you talk about is there's a frame of reference. And I'd like to quickly go back to the opening phrase. We're going to Budapest uh, and the politics of naming in this. So um, we're on our way to Budapest, Bastard and Chippo and God knows and Spo and Stina and me. And um, as an opening phrase, I think this is fabulous because it's confusing in so many ways. First of all, you ask yourself, where is Budapest? And um, I don't think we're spoiling anything when we say this is not Uh, the Budapest that pe readers might expect, but this is the um, high-class part of a Zimbabwean town in uh, Africa. And the kids come from paradise, as we learn. And of course, paradise is not paradise, but it is uh, a shanty town um, of makeshift buildings where uh, violence is a, is a daily basis. And this is the playground for these kids. So um, they go picking guavas in the trees, and then sometimes they go scavenging um, in rich people's houses, and they just laugh about things, and they're kids. So it's, it's very relatable, but it's also estranging because of its focus on when you eat too many guavas, you have to go to the bathroom <laughs> yeah. in many ways. So that's the one thing, the naming and the defamiliarization of these places. And the other point is, trauma and narrative perspective and this child perspective. When you wrote your novel, also from a young person's point of view, maybe, I mean, can you, can you talk about how you, how you evoke this perspective? How did you, how do you do this? And how does Bulavayo do it? So generally there are two perspectives in first person narratives, you know, so she uses the I throughout except for three chapters, right? The two voices kind of weave in and out of, of each other. So one voice is called the innocent and the other one is the voice of reflection. And normally when you're writing for children, you're writing in the innocent voice. So this is the voice, it's not actually innocent, but what that means is that it is the voice of a person who is experiencing whatever the situations are in real time. And you only get to hear what they see, feel, and think at that moment, right? So when they are eating those guavas and they're, you know, sitting around the trees or sitting on top of trees, you know, in those vivid scenes, we only get to hear Darling's perspective in the real time. And sometimes a more mature voice sneaks in, right? The, the writer who is writing the narrative at the time, and they reflect on certain things. Hmm. And so these two things come as, as literally devices, literary devices that we use as writers to explain our world to mm. the reader. I mean, it's just as simple as that. And so when I was writing my narrative, you know, I did have some experiences that, are, that were unusual 
for most people, okay? Just just like um, Bulawayo's experiences. And sometimes I had to reflect on them as an adult person versus that young person who was experiencing them to make sense, right? Yeah. To make sense of what was happening. And I find that she's doing that really, really well in her narrative. I mean, writing any story from a from a young protagonist perspective is tricky because you have to become that child. You know, you can't yeah. suddenly be, you know, go from a child to a 30-year-old scholar yeah. and change your voice completely. And all of a sudden you can explain things to the reader differently. And she manages to do that really well. I wanted to point out something that you you mentioned about uh, the namings, right? So Paradise, ironically, is used quite often to name shanty towns mm-hmm. and places that are complete opposite in, in either their aesthetic or what have you. In fact, where I live in Las Vegas, you know, the, the area where all the casinos are, you know, the very famous yeah, Las we Vegas kind Boulevard. Of know that. Yeah, it's kind of hyper-mediatized. So that area... Images, I think, yeah. That area is not located in the city of Las Vegas. It's located in the incorporated area called Paradise. Mm-hmm. And most people don't know that. So it's quite ironic that she chooses Paradise. I mean, of course, Paradise is a place... Of course, it has this um, oxymoronic quality where it signifies the opposite of what is associated with it, but it's also it also has a spiritual um, transcendent quality. Um, so paradise in in Christian teleology is 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 the place after death, the place where you know you don't have to prove anything or or you go beyond death when you're saved. And religion is is an important component in this novel. And change is as well. So there's an, um, a depiction of praying and uh, of the daily rituals that is directly connected to a kind of pretense uh, celebration of election culture around it. So there's a logic of uh, introducing change and change is a, is a slogan for the elections. This is the time in history when uh, Zimbabwe has been freed uh, from uh, colonization. It is now being run by by Africans or by Zimbabweans, but the by elites that are corrupt and that go about just exploiting and destroying any uh, opponents. And so there's a movement for change. And uh, one of the young fighters for this change, which basically spills out in the kid's mind as guys wearing black t-shirts with a white heart on them and yeah. the slogan change. So that is, change is going to come and change is a slogan, but nobody really knows what it's supposed to be. But Darling and her friends, they do know that the way things are, it can't continue. So they, they know that something's got to change, but they have no inkling of how this could be done. And this is also part of the naive perspective. Mm. So if, does, if change does come, um, then things will be better. But there's a huge disappointment when one of the revolutionary heroes is killed. And I'd like to talk with you about how this killing is staged in the novel, because it's, again, such a smart way of staging the kid's perspective. We don't find out about the events. When they happen, we only find out when the kids replay them, they restage them. Mm-hmm. What did you think about that section? I think that was really well. It was a very clever way of actually taking us closer to the event itself. I mean, because it because it is from, from Darling's perspective, if she wasn't there during the killing, she would not have witnessed it. But we have this group of 
children play acting, right? Play acting, you know, a crime. And I think there are some NGO people who are watching, right? Some girls. Oh, it's the BBC. Watching some BBC reporters. And they're looking at it and they're like, what the heck is going on here? What are these kids doing? Right? Yeah. And they ask one of the kids and it says, don't you know this is for real? This is not a game. So this really struck me that kids, you know, when we play action, we are not playing. It's real. Uh, Usually this is processing things that we're learning uh, from the world around us. They processed this shocking event through game and I don't think it was normal, but I really do think there's a process of some sort going on, trying to figure out, well, it's a question of identity, you know, mm-hmm. who you belong, right? So God knows asks at some point, well, what exactly is an African, right? Is it connected to racial descent or the colonial history of the country? Because Born Free was the embodiment of an African in their eyes. Now they're questioning that, right? That image, Mm. that symbol. Uh, This is why we barely even see Born Free through the book. I mean, he symbolizes something. He's there as a metaphor. And the kids are trying to figure out what it means for them. You know, if you can be an African in this way, as a person of choice, isn't that what they called him? He was one of the people of change. Change, yeah, yeah. He subscribed to that, yeah. Right. He fought for which is actually a very nonviolent title, you know, we're <laughs> change. Yes. And this violent thing happens. So of course, change is also an important slogan uh, from Barack Obama, who also figures in this novel, who uh, at one point will have, so, so Darling says uh, he, he didn't look like uh, a president of her own country. He looked like he could be the child of her president of her own country of Zimbabwe. Yeah. So because he looked so young, and uh, she also talks about how people say if even you know if even in the U.S. Uh, an African American or a black person become, can become president, then changes around the corner. So this is a weird transatlantic shuffling back and forth of election slogans um, that doesn't really translate mm-hmm. into this corrupt. Zimbabwean country. So when I, I read an interview with Bulawayo, when she said um, the playground itself was a site for identity building. And I think mm. that's very much what happens. So it's of course, it's in play, but at the same time, it's dead serious. And the kids kind of have an inkling of that. But then they don't, they don't reflect on it. And that's, that's left to the reader. So I want to, I was wondering um, what you thought about reader address, what kind of readers does this book speak to? I mean, it's written in English by a Zimbabwean author. Mm-hmm. It was shortlisted for the Man Booker. And I can, can I just quickly quote the Man Booker Prize um, is this prize for the best, quote, original full length novel written in the English language by a citizen of the Commonwealth of Nations, uh, the Republic of Ireland or Zimbabwe. So wow. <laughs> the long listing for this prize is very much British Empire, uh, wow. post-colonial yeah. or colonial implications. And then it also has this pull towards the US and the American dream and uh, that ideology. So it's very, it's, it's so interesting to see how it is positioned in this transatlantic colonial global north-south power play. And um, I was wondering what you thought about that. Well, I think that, you know, it's hard to tell the audience. Like even I I saw an interview where 
the author was asked that same question and she i think said something like well it's in the language that it's written in right so it will be people who are reading in english and i think that i hope that the audience at some point maybe became or will become the social people who work in the social service area. So people who work with children who come out of traumatic homes, mm. you know, who come out of broken environments, orphanages, I don't know, like people who work with children whose first understanding of identity was muddled by chaos that they grow up in. I really, I know it seems simplistic. Like I don't, we can read it as scholars all we want, right? And we can make these analyses about the the political implications or the social implications of the narrative, what it means to American audience versus Zimbabwean audience. And we're, we're going to interpret it in our own ways. And there are going to be mul multiple ways. I mean, there are, right? Because the book is not a new book anymore. But I think that the real audience should be people who are working in positions where they have to come across people who seem broken in some way. I know this is mm. a terrible, terrible word to use because what is incredible about this narrative is that again it shows everything is everything is coming through through a child's perspective right everything is coming through to us as an audience through a child's perspective and yet this is not a book for children but as an adult you can you can connect with that part of you who was very young and maybe experienced difficult things and you can relate to Darling and her narrative, even if you don't live in Zimbabwe, mm. you know? So then in that way, I think, to take it a step further, I think that anyone who's ever been a child can relate to this <laughs> narrative. I know that's a really naive way of, of looking yeah. at it, but I feel like it is about, at the core of the story that's set in this very difficult political situation, right? I mean, we're talking about colonialism, Globalization too. It's a, there's a huge scenario for just exploitation or self exploitation where the Chinese come in. There's NGOs present, um, and the BBC comes and takes lots of pictures of uh, precarity. And you know, I mean, colonialists do not settle among people, right? They replace. But those are the ideas that these kids would not have. They would not see. So, like when the NGOs come in and they give them gifts. They know that they need to like smile for the camera to get a gift bag or something. You know what I mean? They're not thinking about the, the bigger picture behind yeah. it yeah. and the corruption of the system, not just in their own place, but externally as well. Yeah. But that's something that I found super inter interesting about the novel that it, on the one hand, it gives you this, so it, it mediates the experience on many levels and, um, I was intrigued by an article I read by Cheryl Stobie in 2020 um, that was called Precarity, Poverty, Porn, and Vernacular Cosmopolitanism. And that engages the concept of, of, of poverty porn regarding this, mainly saying there's a voyeurism in just watching precarity and uh, and, and, di and displaying it for certain audiences and, and you know, distancing yourself from that experience because you have it so much better as whoever kind of reader you are. And uh, Stobie argues that this actually does not apply because this reading can leading to can lead to reflect and to um, on this and to different attitudes to actually engage with this. And uh, Bolivario has a really nice technique of 
introducing this mediation on and on. So in the beginning, we have the kids that mediate the trauma and the game becomes trauma becomes a game or game becomes, you know, working through trauma. And then there's the BBC reporters who, and the NGO representatives who just come in, give out gifts or just you know, shoot images. But then when Darling is in the US, she goes to a wedding. She has this really weird run in in the bathroom with a white woman who essentializes and exoticizes her in so many ways and who starts randomly talking to her about how it must be back in Africa, how uh, she's really so sad about all the things that she saw on TV. And Darling just doesn't engage. She just kept saying, huh, huh. Mm, and she's really insecure how to respond to this woman. And she's like, she's she's not even interested in having any kind of conversation at all. She's trying to leave. And then this this white woman first, uh, she starts crying because things are so bad. Then she says, well, my niece is actually in the Peace Corps. And she went and helped. So I'm very proud. And then she becomes very happy. And then in the end, she walks away saying when she went, she also took so many. So when the niece went to Africa, she also South Africa, that is, she also took so many wonderful pictures of Johannesburg. And so she she got to be a Peace Corps activist and she was an artist at the same time, kind of reproaching and remediatizing uh, the image of Africa in inverted commas that you know, the media present to the Western world. So by putting this into the novel, I think Bolavayo asks us to reflect maybe on our own media representations, but she's also speaking back to all the criticisms. And so this this is the one thing that I've read and that really pissed me off. Uh, Misheko Kakutani's New, New York Times review. I don't know that you came across this, I but read it. it's a review that, you know, says there is a misstep so, so it's it's generally benevolent, but um, the review says there is a misstep in this otherwise stunning novel. Not only, and this is a quote, do they try to project one point of view onto the experience of a white and varied group of immigrants, but also because they, and these are the chapters that divert from Bolavai, from Darling's own perspective, they are not always true. And Kakutani says, for instance, the remarkably talented author of this book, the novel Jacket Tells Us, was, quote, born and raised in Zimbabwe and moved to the United States where she earned an MFA, now a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford, which sounds very much like a dream achieved. So this is such a... <laughs> problematic position of saying oh this is aesthetically really appealing but then there are these chapters that we need to talk about that break the uh, perspective of darling and resort to a we perspective or a they perspective and kakutani finds that this is not so well done because basically bulawayo shouldn't complain and i think this is a very a very difficult argument I disagree, 100% disagree. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, to read narratives uh, that come from people from cultures other than your own, you kind of need to know a little bit about the storytelling process of that culture. You have to. You can't just look at an author and make a determination. I mean, you know, generally, African cultures are collective in terms of the storytelling process, right? So the sense of community is a very important, part of this book, you know, and she talks about, Bolawayo actually talks about in several interviews that she, uh, not about Darling, but about a community that Darling comes from, right? In books we need, in fiction, we need a protagonist. 
So by way of the structure and the form, we need Darling to lead us through the story. But it's not a story about Darling. It's a story about a community, right? That's that's being degraded and destroyed over and over again. So when you experience hardship, you're part of a group. You know, you maybe you experience hardship because you lost a job or because of some family crisis. It's never just us, an individual person. So I think it's important to understand that Bulawayo is not writing just about Darling. And, and this is why the three chapters make so much sense. Because of course, as an informed reader, you understand she's not talking about everyone when she says we, mm -hmm. right? But there's a sense of community. And if you read fairy tales, you know, that come from those th that part of the world, we is used more than I, generally. That is the go-to. We are doing this. We are building this, you know? Yeah. yeah. So through every individual narrative that you will ever read runs a vein of the universal. Yes. The reader needs both to fully connect with the story anyway. And so the book contains actually three narratives. You know, it has the I, it has the A, they, and it has the we. Mm -hmm. And each is a universe watched from different eyes. And she herself again mentions in an interview that the story is weaved together yes. with one and many voices, as it should. I mean, I don't understand the complaint here. <laughs> so she made it. She, she actually succeeded in one one part of her life. That's all we know. I mean, she got an MFA. Uh, to some people, that would not constitute success, really. But whatever. Mm -hmm. The the other the other. If I can just chip in here, yeah. the other um, review I read from the Guardian uh, by Helen Habila mm -hmm. said that basically uh, one of the fault lines of the novel is that she's trying to cover too much ground. So colonialism, both colonialism, globalization, north south. And uh, the argument is towards the end, the world is a dark and ugly place. A lot of that ugliness and injustice is present in Africa, but we don't turn to literature to confirm that the news is enough. What we turn to literature for is its ability to transport us beyond the headlines. No. And I think unwittingly, this comment just refers back to what Kakutani takes issue with, namely these three chapters. These three chapters take us out of um, maybe the headlines and they're almost composed in a kind of a, a, a prosody. Uh, they, they are also different from Darling's perspective. Um, they adapt a different narrative stance. And I should say maybe, you know, they weave their own narrative. They're called how they appeared, how they lived and how they lived. So mm -hmm. they become their own story and they, what I found intriguing was how um, these three chapters depict movement and mobilities. Because in this day and age, we talk so much about migrant mobilities, involuntary mobilities, border crossings, uh, mobility studies itself has become a huge thing in cultural studies. And uh, we study how mobilities are represented, how they're rendered between nation states and so on. So there's a lot of politics involved in how you talk about this movement. And in the chapter, How They Appear, talks about just appearing. So this is a chapter how all these poor people end up in paradise in the shanty town. And then How They Left is about the basically the children leaving Africa and, and leaving Zimbabwe and thus taking away its, its futurities. And this is a reference to leaving in droves. 
So you never see individual bodies walking. There's no description of that. There's almost tidal waves of movements or um, flocks happening. And movement is, is defamiliarized in this way. There's no talk of border crossings. Also, we never hear about how um, Darling came to the U.S., how she immigrated. We only hear about how she can't go back because she is still, after, four, I think, eight years there, she has no, she has no, no immigration status. So she can't leave. She can't go home again. And then the third chapter, how they lived how she ends up in the U.S. Um, is really depressing as well. It's a it's a chapter about appearances and smiling back when you're being asked about coming from a so-called poor country or so-called uh, third wave uh, third world country. Mm-hmm. So it really becomes this own story in and of itself, and it talks a lot about different times of home in different homes. And when I read it, I was wondering about how those homes interact in relation to the inside or um, the perspective of the kid growing up or maybe refusing to grow up and to integrate into this new American society. What do you think about that? Well, it's funny because that's one of my favorite passages here when she talks about home and home and belonging you know yes and often immigrant narratives are centered around this idea of home and belonging because it seems like we intrinsically need that and yet often when you leave as an immigrant you don't leave because things are great you know you're you're fleeing something and this this dislocation from place to place the uprooting when you're young does something to your to your idea to your understanding of belonging mm. it makes it more fluid than for someone who was born and you know lives in the same country and never leaves i feel like people who move around a lot internalize home they the home becomes more of a concept that has to do with how you feel rather than a physical location but because you understand how uncertain a physical home is, you know, how it could at any moment disappear. And of course, again, this understanding might not be something that some people, like people who are rooted, grounded can understand, you know, in the United States, you know, unless you're homeless, you, this idea of buying a home is a big, big deal, right? It's part of the American dream. At some point, you know, you get older, you, you get a good job and you buy a home. Yeah. And that means that you don't buy a house, you buy a home. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> That's part of the program. It can't be just a house because a house is like, but it's got to be a home. It's got to be a home. You know, that means you made it somehow. Mm-hmm. And and if somebody can't do that in this culture, in the Western culture, it's frowned upon. Yes. You cannot find a physical home. Something something is wrong. We see in narratives uh, such as Bulawayo's fluidity, this understanding of how fragile a home can really be, you know, when they're talking about people arriving, right? So in that first, how they, how they arrived chapter that comes from the they perspective. Yeah. I, I don't think they're all poor people who come in anti towns. I think they are people who are actually, who had a pretty good idea of home, suddenly destroyed, right, by violence. And they have no choice but to flee into shanty towns. Mm. And suddenly they have to build houses from 
tin and you know pieces of bricks that they find here and there in one of the chapters i think it was maybe the second chapter darling talks about her father looking at a picture of her father on the wall he graduated from a university we're talking about people who are educated it's not like people who are just going from one shanty town to another they arrived from the rooted homes and suddenly they didn't have them anymore they won the american dream Mm. So they're going, mm. they're going for that kind of a stable idea that they have in their mind of mm-hmm. what it will mean to be happy in life. Yes. And of course, yes. when they get here, that's the story that they were telling themselves. Yeah. Yeah. There's a one latching onto point that I found super intriguing when I read this. So when I read this, um, of course, I read this fairly recently. And I, I, I came, I stumbled across a reference to the American dream that ideological concept that is so important uh, in American literature and the cultural imaginary. And I stumbled across the American dream in President Biden's executive order on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. So this is the first executive order that the new president signed uh, on January 20th, 2021 as a first act of governance. And there uh, it quotes, Equal opportunity is the bedrock of American democracy, and our diversity is one of our country's greatest greatest strengths. But for too many, the American dream remains out of reach. That's a quote from um, the executive order, the first executive order President Biden signed coming into office. And as I read this, I, I... I wondered how how the American dream works in this executive order and how it works in uh, Boalayo's novel, because I felt that the executive order, of course, everybody was, or I can say, I speak for myself. So I was very relieved to find a change from the white supremacist theories and ideologies that we heard so much about during the previous administration. So um, I thought this was a a sign of hope and maybe even of change harking back to the Obama presidency. But also it's a promise that Biden has to kind of fulfill because he wasn't so much elected uh, due to his party basis. He was also elected by this coalition of so many organizations that were struggling to uh, make the voices of underserved communities heard. But still, I think for characters like Darling or Uncle Kojo that she lives with, who immigrate on a visitor's visa and then cannot ever go home again, I think the American dream doesn't offer, cannot possibly offer a home because home is so deeply related to citizenship. And that's something that, you know, the executive order maybe overlooks uh, or doesn't deal with. And I wonder, is there is there home in the American dream without citizenship? From personal perspective, yes, because I also believe that home is something you carry with you. It's it's not an external thing. But you know, American dream was never accessible to everyone. I mean, that's it's a it's a myth that we have this standard that everyone can work towards. That has never been the case in in this country and. It's great to have hope. I think it gives a lot of people um, some kind of sense of direction. And I do feel like immigrants don't take that, that ideal for granted. You know, immigrants come here hoping that it's true you know, and, and it becomes an integral part of why they're here. 
And so I think that this this idea of American dream right now is in flux too. So it's mm. interesting that Biden uses that mm. because for the first time, I think, you know, from what I'm seeing amongst my friends here in the country, people just realize that that we need to change so many things, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that it's, it's in shambles. The system is mm -hmm. in shambles. Mm -hmm. American dream is this idea um, that is not accessible to most. Mm. And, you know, you see that a lot in younger people, too, the way that they talk about the system where, you know, they're saying, well, me buying a house is, is, is not going to happen. Yeah, like I'm I'm drowning in my student loans, wow. and I have a minimum wage job. So there's no way that I can ever attain this American dream. Like yeah. that's just not going to happen if things go the way that they're going. And we see that in this narrative too, like this sense of hopelessness. So Darling comes arrives to United States, and she becomes like an ordinary. Even though she's an immigrant, she becomes like an ordinary American. You know, working. She's in the minimum service wage industry. Job. Yeah. 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 Doesn't she clean a house and then the guy tries to take take advantage of her or something like that? Yeah, so and she has a cockroach crawling over her and she's putting away dirty beer bottles at the local the Walmart or some some department store or some grocery store. So it's it's right. it's really kind of sad the trajectory she makes, but it's maybe also um, a point for me to lead over to to the two questions I always try to ask on this podcast. So one question we already addressed, how American is this book? And mm -hmm. we've talked about the American dream and we've tried to locate it. We've located it in the transatlantic, in the north-south division, uh, in the post-colonial context, but also the American dream is the overarching ideology that gets her moving, I would I would argue. And then the second question, I and this is what we kind of still have a little time maybe to answer is, how feminist is it? This is a book by a female writer, and this is the Lady Fiction Podcast. So um, that's a question I always ask. Is it feminist or is it what kind of feminism is this or how empowering is this? What What would you say? This is a very good question. <laughs> this is a very good question. I think in general, we need more Lady Fiction out there. Yay. You know, I agree. Uh, even... Right. Even if these writers don't consider, I don't think she's ever called herself a feminist. Mm -hmm. The fact that she has a young, young girl uh, speaking on this, right, mm -hmm. on this, the, this incredible experience. Like you said, somebody said that she was trying to take on too much. Well, mm -hmm. good. Yeah. You know, she should take on all of her experiences. Who's to say that she only has to be limited to a particular, you know, narrowed down storyline? Mm. She took on the entirety of the experience of a young woman and she brought it to us unapologetically so in that way it is feminist i believe because you know if if somebody's reading this the story uh and they happen to be a young woman they will learn something about resilience and perseverance and young woman young woman experience from other cultures i mean this is what feminism is just it's about telling different stories mm. right That's that's what I believe. So I love this uh, TED talk by Chimamanda Ngozi, Danger of a Single Story. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Mm. And she talks about how we need more than one story. We need a multiple, you know, multiple, multiplicity of stories out there from various perspectives to create a whole, yeah. right? To see a, a, something from different angles. And feminist stories need to do that as well. Yeah. And I think in that way, she is doing it. She's accomplished it. 
Thank you. That is a great closing statement from my wonderful guest, Oksana Mafioti. Thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast. Thank you for tuning in to our listeners. And uh, I think we can close this podcast by saying we can re recommend reading No Violet Bolivayos. We need new names. Do you agree? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Good. So keep reading and uh, stay tuned for the next episode of Lady Fiction. Thank you for being here, Oksana. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening. This is it. <laughs> yes! <laughs>